we continue to make our way in Sunday school, in adult Sunday school, as well as the sermon series through the gospel according to Mark. We are in chapter 13. Let us ask the Lord's blessing upon the reading and hearing of His holy word. Gracious Heavenly Father, You are very great, and in Your greatness of love and mercy, You have sent Your Son to be our Savior. We call upon You in His name and for the sake of His church that You would now pour out Your Holy Spirit upon us afresh to open our hearts and to give spiritual illumination to our minds, to open our ears with your grace so that we might receive your word for what it is, the word of the living God. And we pray, Lord, that you would thereby convict and convert us more and more so that we might also deny ourselves and take up our cross and follow Jesus to the glory of your name. Amen. The gospel according to Mark, chapter 13, beginning at verse 1, it is written, the Word of God. And as he, that is Jesus, came out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what wonderful stones, what wonderful buildings. And Jesus said to him, Do you see these great buildings? There will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. And as he sat on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter and James and John and Andrew asked him privately, Tell us, when will these things be and what will be the sign when all these things are about to be accomplished? And Jesus began to say to them, See that no one leads you astray. Many will come in my name, saying, I am he, and they will lead many astray. And when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. This must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places. There will be famines. These are but the beginning of the birth pains. But be on your guard. For they will deliver you over to councils, and you will be beaten in synagogues, and you will stand before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them. And the gospel must first be proclaimed to all nations. And when they bring you to trial and deliver you over, do not be anxious beforehand what you are to say, but say whatever is given you in that hour, for it is not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit. And brother will deliver brother over to death, and the father, his child, and children will rise against parents and have them put to death, and you will be hated by all for my name's sake. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. Now unto him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood, to Jesus Christ be all praise, honor, and glory. Amen. One New Testament scholar has written that Mark 13 is, quote, one of the most perplexing chapters in the Bible to understand for readers and interpreters alike. So, here we go. Throughout Mark 13, Jesus is speaking prophetically. He is telling his disciples about events which 
from their vantage point were in the future, things to come. The perplexing thing is that at some points in Mark 13, the verses we just read, it seems clear that Jesus is prophesying the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem, which happened in 70 A.D. And then at other points later in Mark 13, it seems that Jesus might have been prophesying his second coming at the end of history and the last judgment. Now, that's two different events separated now by at least 2,000 years, all in one prophetic sermon. And so that creates some ambiguity and differences of scholarly opinion about the interpretation of Mark 13, also Matthew 24, known as Jesus' Mount Olivet Discourse. Now, this morning, we're going to focus only on verses 1 through 13. But we need to remember where we are in the gospel of Mark. We are in the last week of Jesus' earthly life and ministry, Holy Week, the Passion Week, the week in which he will be crucified. Now, you remember that on that day we now call Palm Sunday, as Jesus entered Jerusalem for the Passover, The crowd had hailed him as the son of David, a messianic title which carried overtones of military victory and liberation for the Jewish people who were at that time the conquered subjects of the Roman Empire. But on the next day, Jesus did a strange thing. He cursed a fig tree because it had no fruit on it. That was a prophetic, symbolic action. In the Old Testament, a fig tree is sometimes seen as a symbol of Old Covenant Israel, particularly of Israel under God's judgment. And as we discussed in Sunday school last week, that fig tree, which Jesus cursed, then withered away to its roots. Here's the point. Jesus is cursing of that fig tree such that it withered away to its roots was a prophetic, symbolic action during this last week of his earthly ministry portending judgment upon old covenant Israel, the Israel of his day. And then you remember when Jesus went to the temple He drove out those who were buying and selling in the temple, and he overturned the tables of the money changers. Jesus' cleansing of the temple, again, was a prophetic, symbolic action of judgment, which would come upon the temple due to the corruption of the first century religious establishment. Now, last Sunday, Pastor Jonathan preached from Mark 12, about the parable of the tenants of the vineyard. In the Old Testament, a vineyard is also an important symbol for Old Covenant Israel. Jesus told that parable to show how throughout ancient Israel's history, God had sent prophets to speak his word and to call his people to true faith and repentance and obedience. But, as it says in the parable, They beat some and killed others. So finally, in the parable, the owner of the vineyard, God, sent his beloved son, 
Jesus, to get some fruit from the vineyard. But the tenants of the vineyard took this beloved son and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. And then Jesus asked this question, what will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. What was Jesus saying? He was prophesying through this parable first. His own rejection and death at the hands of the religious leaders of Old Covenant Israel and of the mob which they would stir up. Second, the ensuing judgment that would therefore fall upon Old Covenant Israel. And third, that the covenant blessing of being God's vineyard, God's holy people, would be given to others that is, to the Gentiles, to people of every nation who would receive and honor Jesus as their Savior and Lord, the Christ, the Son of God. That's review. So we can pause now and take a breath. But you see, all of that builds up to where we come today in Mark 13. And here's the big idea that I want you to hold on to. Here's the big idea of everything I've just said. In the last week of Jesus' earthly ministry, he was speaking and acting prophetically to declare that old covenant Israel was about to come to its end. The end. Now, you remember the shrimp and sausage gumbo sermon? Jesus declared all foods clean because his sacrificial death would bring about the end of the ceremonial and dietary laws of the Old Covenant because all who believe in him are made clean by his blood. Well, now, at this point, Jesus just takes that to the next level. The whole system of Israelite worship centered in the temple in Jerusalem where sacrifices were offered. The entire sacrificial system, the entire religious establishment of the old covenant Israelite priesthood, all of that which had been institutionalized since the days of Moses, it all, it all, it all was about to come to its end. The end under God's judgment. And a terrible judgment it would be, and a terrible judgment it was. Okay. Now, I'm going to pause and say something parenthetically. It's very important in our day. When we refer to the conflict between Jesus and the religious leaders of first century Judaism, when we speak about God's judgment upon old covenant Israel, we are speaking about historical realities of the first century. Historical realities of the first century, period. There is nothing in any of this which provides a basis for anti-Semitism Today, Jesus and all of the apostles were Jews. And Jesus wept. Jesus wept 
over Jerusalem as he contemplated the judgment which would befall it in the first century. There is no basis anywhere in the New Testament for any kind of anti-Semitism. There is no basis anywhere in the New Testament for any kind of anti-Semitism. Okay, just want to make that clear. And now we go to Mark 13. As he, Jesus, came out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. Well, indeed, the temple in Jerusalem in the first century was one of the ancient world's most magnificent structures. Google it up and read about it. This was the temple which had been rebuilt by the Jews after they had returned from exile in Babylon. But in Jesus' day, this second temple had been remodeled and expanded by Herod the Great, who was remembered for his massive building projects. Herod's improvements made it one of the architectural wonders of the Roman world. The temple complex covered about 35 acres. The sanctuary was 150 feet high, 150 feet high, as was the temple wall. The columns that supported the portico, the columns were so large that three large men, large men, standing fingertip to fingertip, could hardly encompass the pillars. The Jewish historian Josephus recorded that some of the stones of the temple structure were 60 feet long, 11 feet high, and 8 feet deep, weighing more than a million pounds each. As R.C. Sproul has commented, the temple complex must have looked strong enough to stand for a thousand years or more. But about this magnificent and beautiful structure, and it was beautiful, with, overlaid with gold, it's a beautiful place. Jesus said, do you see these great buildings? There will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. Jesus was prophesying the destruction of the Jewish temple. Then they left the temple area and crossed over the Kidron Valley and sat on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple. So we need to imagine them sitting on the Mount of Olives and looking back at the temple with the disciples perplexed about what Jesus had just said about the destruction of the temple. And they asked him, tell us, when will these things be and what will be the sign when all these things are about to be accomplished? The disciples wanted to know about the future. Don't we all? But how does Jesus respond? The very first thing he says is, see that no one leads you astray. Now that warning would be applicable in any period of history, wouldn't it? It was relevant in the first century. It's been relevant for 2,000 years of church history. It's still applicable for us today. See that no one leads you astray by a false gospel. Those who present a false gospel are false Christs, false saviors, or they are representing false Christs. The next thing Jesus says is do not be alarmed. Here Jesus is warning his disciples against overreactions to calamities and catastrophes, wars and rumors of war, nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom, earthquakes in various places, and famines. 
But Jesus' point here is that not even these cataclysms signal the immediate coming judgment. He said, these are but the beginning of the birth pains. His counsel is, therefore, do not be alarmed. But unfortunately, it's true that in our day, some people within evangelical Christianity start predicting the second coming of Christ in the immediate future every time war breaks out in the Mideast, every time there's an earthquake somewhere, every time there's some kind of extreme climatological or rare astronomical event. Brothers and sisters, these things have been taking place for 2,000 years. But Jesus himself said that these things are not the sign of the end, of his immediate return. The next thing Jesus says is, be on your guard. He warns the disciples that persecution is coming. For they will deliver you over to councils, and you will be beaten in synagogues. You will stand before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them. And the gospel must first be proclaimed to all nations, and you will be hated by all for my name's sake. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. Jesus is saying, be on your guard, because persecution is coming. Don't be surprised by it. Don't be dejected by it. Don't be defeated by it. Get ready for it. Trust in me and the power and presence of the Holy Spirit through it. Endure to the end and you will be saved. So you see, in response to their question, when when will these things be? Jesus, first of all, gave them instructions, commands for faithful discipleship. Don't be led astray. Don't be alarmed. Be on your guard. Those instructions were for the first century disciples. Those instructions are for us as well. Now, Here's where it gets interesting and maybe a little bit more perplexing. Everything we just read in verses 1 through 13 occurred during the lifetime of the disciples. Everything in Mark 13, 1 through 13, which Jesus spoke prophetically, has already happened, including the destruction of the temple in 70 A.D., This portion of Jesus' prophecy has already been perfectly fulfilled. In the 40-year period between Jesus' resurrection and the destruction of the temple, there were several false Christs, several false Jewish messiahs who arose seeking to lead the Jewish people astray, and who did lead them, some of them, astray. During that period between 30 A.D. and 70 A.D., there were wars and rumors of war, political upheavals, skirmishes, conflicts throughout the Roman Empire. Lots of ups and downs. Earthquakes, one of those, one among others, leveled Pompeii in 62 A.D. And during this time, several famines affected the Mideast, including one mentioned in the book of Acts. And as for Jesus' words in verse 9, telling the disciples that they would be delivered over, quote, to councils, and you will be beaten in the synagogues, you will stand before governors and kings for my sake, well, that sounds just like an outline of the book of Acts. It's all there in the book of Acts, in which it is recorded that the apostles experienced all of those very things as they proclaimed the gospel of Jesus. Now, the one point which might about which there might be a question arises in verse 10, which says the gospel must first be proclaimed to all nations. 
Did that happen in the life of the lifetime of the apostles? Before the destruction of the temple in 70 AD? We have to be careful here. We have to interpret Scripture with Scripture. What does the Bible say? The Bible says in Acts 2.35 that on the day of Pentecost, after Jesus' ascension into heaven, there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And they heard the gospel proclaimed on the day of Pentecost. In Colossians 1.6, the apostle Paul wrote that the gospel was bearing fruit and growing, quote, in the whole world. In Romans 16.26, Paul wrote that the mystery of the gospel, quote, has been made known to all nations. That's what the Bible says. So in Mark 13.10, the words all nations are an accepted manner of speech, a turn of phrase does not violate the inerrancy of Scripture in any way. Used in a particular historical context, referring to the nations, or better said, ethnic groups of people throughout the known world of the Roman Empire. So the point here is that in Mark 13, 1 through 13, we have a prophecy with several sub-prophecies spoken by Jesus and fulfilled during that 40-year period after his resurrection, culminating in the destruction of the temple by the Roman army in 70 A.D. And the events during the Roman siege of Jerusalem and the ultimate desecration and burning and destruction of the temple and the slaughter of a million or more Jews by the Romans in Jerusalem, those events were among the most ungodly, gruesome, ghastly, horrible episodes of war in all of world history. It was indeed a time of great tribulation. And I believe that the following passages down to uh, verse 27 really speak about Jesus' prophesying the destruction of the temple in A.D. 70. But lay that aside for the moment. That is to say, the, some of the passages which follow, not the entirety, but some, Jesus is still addressing the destruction of the temple, which would happen in A.D. 70. It all came to pass in A.D. 70. Jesus, the Son of God, prophesied this judgment on Old Covenant Israel, and it came to pass in 70 A.D., the end, the end, the end of Old Covenant Israel, the end. Jesus spoke it, and it happened. Now, what does this mean to you? It means this. First of all, the destruction of the temple and the end of the Old Covenant Israel, the end of Old Covenant Israel, verifies, vindicates, sub substantiates the fact that Jesus was indeed the Messiah of Israel, the Son of God, who was rejected by and large by His own people, but who by his resurrection from the dead became the mediator 
of a new and better covenant by His death on the cross and resurrection became the mediator of a new and better covenant. The old covenant with its sacrifices of of blood, of bulls and lambs and goats, blood sacrifices which had to be continually offered for sin, has come to its end because Jesus has once for all offered up His own blood for the eternal redemption of all who trust in Him. Salvation for both Jew and Gentile is found only through true faith in Jesus the Christ, the Son of God, as personal Savior and Lord. His sinless life of perfect obedience to God qualified him as the unblemished Lamb of God who was slain for sinners once. Jesus was the true Passover Lamb. Remember, this all took place during Passover. He was the true Passover lamb. He was slain as the substitutionary sacrifice so that the curse of death would pass over all those marked with his blood, marked by true and saving faith in him. So the offering up of himself brought an end to the sacrifices of bulls and goats and lambs by a high priest in the temple in Jerusalem because Jesus is not only the true sacrificial lamb, he is also the great high priest. He is the great high priest who offered himself up as the once for all, all sufficient sacrifice for sins. He's the priest. He's the sacrifice. He offers up himself, and as the great high priest who offered up himself as a sacrifice for sins, he now has passed through the heavens into the holy of holies in the highest heavens at the right hand of the majesty, the glory of God the Father, where he now reigns in glory and ministers on behalf of his blood-bought, redeemed people." sympathizing with us in our weaknesses and in our struggle against sin, interceding for us on the basis of His sacrifice for us. And He is able to save to the uttermost all who come to God by faith in Him. By His blood, He has made a new and living way for us to enter into the holy places of heaven so that we might draw near with confidence to the throne of grace in the very presence of God the Father. Before the throne of God above, I have a pure and perfect plea, a great high priest whose name is love. Whoever lives and pleads for me, my name is written on his hands. My name is written on his I know that while in heaven he stands, no tongue can bid me thence depart. That's the blessing. That's the blessing 
of the assurance of eternal salvation through the new covenant, sealed with the blood of Jesus. Do you have that eternal assurance in your heart today? You see, the end of the old covenant, with the coming of the new covenant, the abolishing of the old, the establishment of the new through the blood of Christ means that the worship of the true and living God is no longer centrally located in a particular place on earth, the temple in Jerusalem. No. And the dwelling place of God with His people is not in a particular place, the temple in Jerusalem. No. The city of God is not located in a particular place, Jerusalem. No. Brothers and sisters, the church of Jesus Christ spread throughout the earth in every nation, comprised of people of every tongue and tribe, is the temple, the temple, the living temple of the living God, indwelt by His Spirit. And the dwelling place of God, the city of God, is with His people, His kingdom, comprised of Christ's believers from every tribe and tongue and nation. And if you are a true Christian today, you have been incorporated into that holy city, that holy nation, that holy temple of living stones joined together to Jesus Christ, the cornerstone, forever. And so you see, brothers and sisters, please, 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 don't be lulled to sleep by our culture. Don't be lulled to sleep by cultural Christianity. Don't be lulled to sleep into lukewarmness by social convention. Don't be thinking of the church as some kind of another human organization of where they do religious stuff and you, you like to go there with your friends, you know, when it's convenient. No, 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 no. If you are in Christ, you've been bought by His blood. The church of Jesus Christ says, the Apostle Peter, he says to you, listen, listen to who you are. You, Christian people, you, church of Jesus Christ, you are a chosen race. You are a royal priesthood. You are a holy nation. You are God's precious possession." That language from 1 Peter is language drawn directly from the book of Exodus. You are the new Israel of God. That's who you are, bought by the blood of the Lamb, redeemed for life in His kingdom, and now you represent the kingdom of heaven on the earth. And if you are a true Christian today, you will share in the glory of his new creation when he comes again to judge the living and the dead. And his kingdom of righteousness, peace, and joy comes in all its fullness. And that's the other thing that is very important. At the end of Mark 13, Jesus spoke about that day and hour which no one knows. I think that at that point, beginning at verse 32, I believe that Jesus was indeed prophesying His second coming and the last judgment. And here's what we'd better get. Jesus was right about the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 A.D., and he was right 
when he prophesied that he will come again in glory with all the angels with him and judge between the sheep and the goats and separate those who will enter his eternal kingdom from those who will be banished into eternal fire. Romans 2.16 says that on that day, God will judge the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. The secrets. So why did Jesus prophesy both the judgment on Old Covenant Israel and also His second coming, the last judgment, together in one prophetic sermon? Because, brothers and sisters, He wants us to know and to know for sure that the judgment upon Old Covenant Israel with the destruction of the temple in 70 A.D. was just a foreshadowing, just a preview, if you will, of the judgment which will come upon the whole world on the last day when he comes again. Just as there was judgment upon Jerusalem in 70 A.D., so there will be judgment upon the world on the last day. And whether that takes place in our own earthly lifetime or in another 2,000 years hence makes no difference because on that day the dead will be raised and we all will appear before the judgment seat of Christ to our everlasting glory or our everlasting torment. So, dearly beloved, flee the wrath to come. Flee. Flee the wrath to come. Come to Jesus Christ. Bow the knee. Make sure that you are marked by the blood of the Lamb through true and saving faith in Jesus Christ. On that great and terrible day, there will be no escape, no hope, no shelter, no Savior, except Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the mediator of the new covenant, by whose blood alone There is forgiveness of sins, righteousness, and everlasting life. To God be the glory. Amen. Most gracious Heavenly Father, we give you thanks and praise for the glorious gospel of your Son. Salvation, full and free. And we pray, O Lord, that your Holy Spirit will work your word deeply into our hearts and grant us the faith to praise you and serve you not only with our lips but also with our lives as faithful disciples of your Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ, to the glory of your name. Amen. In response to
the gospel of Jesus Christ, let us stand to affirm our faith, the faith of the one church of Jesus Christ throughout history and throughout the world as we say together the Apostles' Creed. Christian, in whom do you believe? I believe. Amen.